Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet, and sometimes off the planet. I'm Kevin Fulton. I'm the podcast host. I'm a professor. And this week, we're going to talk to somebody I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. Dr. Annalisa Paul is one of the world experts in how do you grow plants in space? And she's done a number of experiments, both up in space, as well as in remote areas of the globe that simulate an extraterrestrial environment. Uh, Dr. Paula is a director of the UF University of Florida Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Research, a research professor in the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida, and one of the directors of the UF Space Plants Laboratory. So with all that said, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Paul. Thank you. <laughs> I've wanted to do this forever because I love this topic and I really appreciate the talks you give and your attention to this particular uh, issue. So let's start with the really easy one. Um, the first question is, why would we even bother to grow plants in space at all? It's really expensive. It's difficult. And we have so many food security issues here on Earth. And you think this is an easy question, right? Well, it, it is an easy question from, if you look at it from the very fundamentals, and that is humans are explorers. It's, it's what we do. It's absolutely in our genes, in our bones, that we want to explore not only our world, but outside of our world. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to have a reliable food source elsewhere. The uh, example I love to use is the ancient Polynesians who did these amazing cross-ocean travel that is comparable to from here going to the moon or to Mars for our kind of levels of technology. And, and they knew that they had to bring their food sources with them. They brought cuttings, they brought seeds, and they knew that they had to be able to be, grow their food when they got there. So one of the things that we learn from trying to grow things in a challenging environment is how to grow them better in a less challenging environment or how to be more innovative in growing things here on Earth. So some of the technologies, for instance, that have gone into how do we grow plants better in space or in planetary analog environments have contributed to how we grow things in, say, greenhouses in the desert or how do we enhance food security for people in isolated locations? How do we do protected agriculture better? How do we monitor plants in order to preserve crop health and activities when we can't be with them all the time? A lot of this kind of technology comes from space. Oh, that's really cool because I thought your answer would be all about you know, you need it in space because if we're going to space permanently and going to colonize that, that's why we need to do it. And is, is there, how much of it is that part of the problem? Well, a lot of it is that. I mean, absolutely. If we want to be more than tourists, if we want to be true explorers, we need plants. 
when we leave Earth's orbit, we will take plants with us because that's what's going to allow us to colonize new areas, to stay instead of just visit. You can only do so much with a bucket full of power bars. And so if we want to expand past the level of the picnic basket, we have to take plants with us. And to do that, we have to know what they need in those kinds of challenging environments. We need to know how they respond. And we need to be able to be confident that when we take our plants with us to a moon colony, to a Mars colony, or even expanded um, orbital facilities, we need to understand what plants need and what they hate. <laughs> no, that's really cool. And I guess it's even one worse than you have to bring plants along. You have to bring seeds along and then grow plants, right? Because it costs how much to put a kilogram into space. Right. Right. It's what we call equivalent systems mass. And everything that you can save is is money in the pocket in terms of energy, resources, or what have you. Um, it's even the reason why, for instance, a greenhouse on Mars is likely not to be one atmospheric pressure. And so it's more likely to be at least half that because plants grow pretty okay in, in half the atmospheric pressure that you and I are breathing right now at, at uh, sea level. But it costs a lot less if you don't have to have a full pumped up greenhouse full of heavy air. So it allows you to uh, be more thrifty with that whole equivalent systems mass equation. You see, but this is the part that blows me away about every talk you give is that your plants still are dependent upon gas exchange through their leaves and their stomata. And they're still in have many dy dynamics with their atmosphere so that still would be something that we would think would be important. But, but what are some of the other major challenges? It would seem like gravity and other things would be really a curveball to a plant growing in a different environment. Yep, that's absolutely true. When, when you grow plants in an environment that they're not accustomed to, they, um, uh, they have to adjust. They have to adapt to their metabolic processes and things. But even before we get into you know, what are the, the, the biochemical consequences of trying to grow in these novel environments, you have to think about engineering. And that is, <laughs> when you don't have any gravity, you don't have, for instance, convection. Hot air does not rise. Cold air doesn't sink. Water goes all over the place. And so one of the biggest problems you have is actually as simple as water in your plants. Because you have um, water behaves strangely when you don't have any gravity holding it together, because the, the uh, adhesion properties of water and the cohesion properties of water is it gets just a little squirrely when you try to move that water around in an environment that has no gravity. Everything is dependent upon capillary action and, and moving water through small volumes and making sure it gets to where it needs to go. And this is a huge challenge to growing things in a microgravity environment, like on the space station. It's not such a big deal on a, on a planetary surface, we think, although nobody's done that quite yet. Um, but there are other problems with atmospheric movement. Like I said, there's no convection. And so you do have problems with, for instance, localized hypoxia, because when you use up all of the oxygen in a small area, especially in a root zone, you don't have a natural mixing of those gases. And so if you don't have fans to move things around, you can get um, uh, depletions of gases around leaves, and you can get um, uh, stresses that are strictly from the, the atmospheric non-mixing of the of the small environment. You also have things like um, uh, 
all of the photons that you have to uh, have in an environment come from, certainly right now in space, are primarily from a, a artificial source. You have an LED source. And so whereas you can modify that to your, um, to your needs, it's not a sort of a natural kind of phenomenon, and it takes energy. So anytime you are growing plants in a habitat that's off planet, you have an energy cost to that. You have an engineering cost to that. And you have to understand that your plants are going to be adjusting to this new and crazy environment. And this is something that as a scientist and plant scientists, and, you know, it should be said, you're down the hall. And the thing that I really always have appreciated is learning more and more about the special engineering uh, accommodations you need to make. Um, and just for the listeners who are listening, you know, plants have these really elaborate systems to sense gravity. So how does a plant even know which direction to go in a microgravity or a not a zero gravity environment? Ah, that's a, that's a great question. So plants use other cues to, uh, to navigate, right? Here, here on earth, we know that plants like to bend towards the light. It's the same thing is true on on the space station. Plants are naturally phototropic, and so the roots are naturally negatively phototropic, so they want to grow away from the light, whereas the shoots parts will grow towards the light. On the earth, gravity trumps light in terms of roots, and so if you take a plant and you put a bean in a jar and you, you, know, you turn it upside down, even if you only shine light in one direction, gravity is still going to win as far as the roots grow. But if you grow them in microgravity, now the roots don't have any other cue, and so they will use light in a negative way and grow away from it. What plants do, though, to create the tools that they need in those root tips to help them navigate is that they turn on genes to um, create essentially sensors in their roots that can help them know which way to go away from where they're planted. And this is, this is the important thing. If you don't grow away from where your seed germinates, you're going to very rapidly use up all the resources in that little tiny spot and then die. So it's been fascinating to us to watch how the um, evolutionarily conserved need to grow away from where you're planted even works in a microgravity environment. And so now I know what you're going to ask next. Well, Annalisa, what if you don't have any light to navigate either? And what is totally fascinating is even if you have no external cues, you don't have light, you don't have gravity, you have nothing. You're just a little seed in a dark box on the space station. How are you going to survive? You have an inherent mechanism in your cells that create this sort of spiral growth pattern that spirals you away from where you're planted as you search out nutrients. And aspects of this uh, root behavior were totally, totally unknown until people started growing them in space because you can't see it on Earth. And will that change the world? Nah, not probably not. But it is one of those things that you look back and you find out when you first see those things growing on the space station, you think, man, how cool is that? <laughs> but we'll come back to that in just one second. I have to touch on the idea of watering one more time oh, because sure. you, you mentioned the idea of, uh, you know, water doesn't behave the same. So how do you water plants in space? Well, there's two ways to water plant. Well, there's probably more than two. There's two ways that 
I have used that I'm accustomed to. One is cheating in a way. And that is if you grow Arabidopsis plants, which is the model organism that we use, they're small, their sort of natural habitat is on a 10 centimeter square Petri plate that's full of nutrient auger, which contains its water. And so the water, the nutrients, everything is tied up into the gel matrix, which doesn't go anywhere in space. And the seeds grow quite happily on the surface of that and get all the water and nutrients they need. However, if you want to grow, say, a crop, you're not going to be growing them on auger plates. You have to have something else. So one of the mechanisms that is commonly used is to take advantage of capillary action. And so um, things like porous ceramic tubes that are surrounded by very porous, uh, friable material. And one of the materials they use, I kid you not, is arcelite which is the same stuff that you spread out on uh, baseball diamonds, that uh, sort of fluffy clay stuff, because it's great at um, moving water around in, in little micropores, and plants can get access to that with their roots. This allows the water to move around, again, by capillary action, but is not uh, freely floating, and so it's a... Uh, hitting astronauts in the eye. <laughs> and that works really pretty well, but it's not perfect. And still, that's really cool to think about all of these engineering problems that we would never have to really consider normally. And and really the only place you can test them is in space. So when, or is it? I mean, how do you do these experiments in a terrestrial environment? Some of them you just, just plain can't do. You just can't. The, uh, the closest that you can get is in very short-term environments, and that is uh, uh, a lot of the um, terrestrial analog experiments we've done from microgravity testing has been in experimental aircraft where you do parabolic... Uh, you fly in a, in a parabolic series of parabolic arcs, and so you get about 30 seconds of microgravity as you come off the top of that arc. And it's a common name is the um, <clears throat> vomit comet, and I guarantee you it is aptly named, although they have pretty good <laughs> medications that, uh, that, that help you avoid that. But uh, yeah, humans don't like that kind of motion. Plants don't like that kind of motion. But if you want short-term access to microgravity, it's a great way to great way to do that. You get about 40 of these parabolas in an afternoon and uh, you, you run your experiments during these short periods. The other way to do it that is not, well, it is not exactly microgravity, but what you can do is that you can disrupt the gravity vector. And this uh, is done by putting plants on what's called random positioning machines, where you have them sort of rotating around in a couple of different angles so that the plants never get a continuous signal of, uh, of gravity. This is by no means true microgravity. It's not even a very good analog of microgravity, but it does disrupt the gravity vector. And so there are things that you can learn, but to get true microgravity, you got to go to space. And you mentioned the work in Arabidopsis, which is a model that allows you to explore the genetics associated with these responses. But have you done any work in crop plants? We have not done much in crop plants. We've done, we've done a little. Um, if you call Mizuna a, a crop, I mean, it's a salady type crop. But for the most part, all of our uh, serious research has been in Arabidopsis. Yeah, I like Mizuno. We, we're growing it here. <laughs> so we're speaking with Dr. Annalisa Paul. She's talking to us about space 
biology and growing plants in space, especially some of the challenges that you encounter. Uh, we'll follow up on the other side with some of her experiments and some of her experiences. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. We are finally seeing golden rice reach a fraction of the people it was meant to serve more than 20 years after its development. We're now 12 months after the development of a vaccine to significantly slow the spread of a troublesome virus. And vaccination rates teeter around 50%. Now here are two technologies that are not reaching those that are meant to serve. And it's part of an ambitious disinformation campaign that seeds fear and unnecessary doubt for profit and politics. Now it's the full-time job of these folks, and we in science and farming can't possibly commit that kind of time. But there are a lot more of us than there are of them. Imagine if we all engaged bad information when we encountered it. On the Twitters, on the Facebooks, in the comment section of news articles, on kooky websites, or even across the dinner table of your favorite whack job amp. Now your mission, Talking Biotech listener, if you choose to accept it, is to engage. Spend a few minutes providing good information where you see something suspect. Remember, you're not speaking to the crazies. You're providing solid, credible, referenced information to those who don't know who to trust. So what information will those concerned folks get to see? An anti-vax website? Joe Mercola, Del Big Tree, USRTK, Food Babe, or you? The change we need to see starts when we step into the conversation. It is not someone else's problem. We all have a moral obligation to inform others using kind persuasion and presentation of evidence. Now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Annalisa Paul. She's one of the directors of the University of Florida Space Plants Laboratory and also the director of the University of Florida Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Research and uh, a colleague of mine for 20 years. And I've always been amazed at the work that she's doing in the area of plant biology as it fits into space. You are talking earlier about the parabolic flight. How many times have you done that? Mm, boy, a lot of times. I have over, hmm, over 1,200 parabolas. <laughs> well, if you ever can't make it and you need <laughs> someone to take the plants up there, um, I think it would be hilarious. I don't know. You're not the first person to make that offer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. It always seems like they should just do the vomit comet as like a adjunct to Disney World or something. So I bet they'd have takers. Well, nowadays, they I think that they do. They, they actually do take people up uh, commercially. You don't have to be a scientist anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. That sounds like, but you actually have had plants in space space, like on the space shuttle and on the ISS, right? 
many times. Uh, my colleague Rob Furl and I have had 11 different spaceflight experiments, one on this couple, no, a couple on the space shuttle and, uh, and many more on the space station. And what were some of the things that you learned in space that you could have never have learned from Earth? Ha, what a wonderful question. There are a couple things that when you take gravity out of the equation, you can reveal new and interesting things about plant behavior, well, any kind of behavior. So the first thing let me outline real quick is that I mentioned earlier about how roots navigate. And one of the things that we found in an early spaceflight experiment where we collected images of the plants growing down on the surface of these uh, uh, Petri plates where the, the plants were growing. And we noticed that very early on that the, the orientation of the plants looked kind of normal. I mean, the shoots went, quote, up, the roots went, quote, down, even though they're in this microgravity environment. So how, how did they do that? Well, part of it is, has to do with light. And like I mentioned earlier, that light acts as a, as a orientation cue for both the roots and the leaves. What was interesting, though, is the roots didn't grow straight away from the light. They sort of jogged off to the left a little bit. And that behavior is called skewing. And when we first were looking at those, Rob Farrell and I were, were looking at the images that are coming down from the space station. And Rob says, hey, are those, are those plants skewing? They can't skew. Plants need gravity to skew. And this is the, the notion that um, in back in the late 1800s, Darwin wrote a book called The Power of Movement of Plants. And he has a really nice chapter on how gravity directs the skewing behavior in plants. And so it was very cool to see that, well, you know what? Gravity isn't required because plants have this inherent mechanism by which they navigate away from where they're planted. And part of that is the skewing behavior. And so when you have light, it just manifests as, like I said, this sort of little jog to the left, the skewing of a, a root direction. But if you put them totally in the dark, then it manifests as this spiral that uh, grows away from where the seed is. So that's something we never would have learned if we hadn't sent them up to space. Well, outside of that kind of behavior, do plants somehow know they're in space? I mean, do they, are they aware that something isn't right? And, and how can you tell? Yeah, that absolutely. So plants even know when they're in an aeroplane. They're exquisitely sensitive to changes in their environment. And one of the mechanisms by which we uh, catalog how they know is on the basis of what genes they use. Essentially, what tools they pull out of their metabolic toolbox to help them adjust to this new and novel environment. And, and I can't stress this enough either, is that this is a novel environment. It's, it's outside their evolutionary experience. And so when you think about how do you respond to something you, you never experienced before, how do you know what to do? And so plants pull out a lot of things out of that metabolic toolbox. And a lot of the genes that they turn on and the genes that they turn off as they physiologically adjust, some of them are probably important, but some of them might be akin to um, pulling a wrench out and using that to, to hammer in a nail. It works, but it's not necessarily the best approach to use. So by looking at this pattern of tools that they use, by looking at what we call the transcriptome, the, uh, the, the, the whole genomic response of, of genes that are turned on and off, we can get a sense of how they're responding and what is important to them. 
And so one of the things that we can tell by looking at these patterns is that something is going on with them in their cell walls, because a lot of the genes that are associated with what we call cell wall remodeling, how cells are um, uh, are organized and grow, are changed in the spaceflight environment compared to the comparable ground controls. Another big suite of genes that they turn on and off are things that are associated with oxidative stress. And so plants think that they are, are in an environment that is, uh, is stressful in some respects. And so they turn genes on to deal with that. And this is how we know that downstream, there are things that we can do to help not only to uh, engineer the physical spaces that they have to live in, but also engineer the plants themselves to be better adapted to growing in these novel environments. That's pretty cool. And by having an inventory of those genes, it gives you a new tool to be able to monitor your adaptive changes or genetic changes to be able to see if they actually are making a difference. It's like a biomarker. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, in some of the, some of the experiments that we've done is when we see that some of the genes seem to be very important to their adaptive processes, what happens if you send a plant to space that's lacking some of those genes? And one of these experiments that we did, we, we sent up plants that were deficient in a particular gene that seemed to be important to them. And now those plants could no longer do root navigation almost at all. And so the plants grew in space in these tight, little stressed out clumps of, uh, of sprouts that um, eventually would die. And so it was a very interesting test that, yes, there are some things that plants truly do need in space they don't really need here on Earth. Well, aside from the vomit comet, you've had opportunities to do some work here on Earth in some extreme environments. And, uh, you know, South Pole, things like that. You were, you were in a crater up in Canada. Um, <laughs> so what are, what's the rationale behind using these t- sort of environments to simulate space? There's, there's a couple, there's a couple rationales for that. One is that, well, first of all, we're not simulating space so much as simulating planetary environments. And so when you grow things at, uh, towards the North Pole or towards the South, basically what you're doing is you're putting yourself and your biology in a situation that is, uh, challenging, that's remote, that is, uh, under the same kind of stressors that you would if you were stuck on Mars or stuck on the moon is you can't just go down to Home Depot to get something to fix something. You have to be able to fix things in situ. You have to be able to design a habitat that can withstand extreme environments. Particularly in Antarctica, I worked in the, um, uh, it's called the Neumeier three Antarctic station. It's uh, run by the, uh, it's a German space station. I mean, not space station, <laughs> Antarctic station. And it is a, there was a greenhouse down there called the Eden ISS project that tried to mimic what it would be like to use this kind of advanced robotically controlled aeroponics that you would envision for on another planetary surface. The other analog of doing it in this kind of environment is that it's, it's harsh. You can go outside and be killed by the environment if you're not properly prepared. So that also is good practice. But there's one more thing that I didn't really think about very much until I was actually down there. And that is when you walk out into that environment, 
you are struck by the, the pristine nature of it, the, the vastness, the expanse, the, the, the totally awe-inspiring vistas. And it gives you an appreciation of how fragile and how precious that kind of environment is. And that is something that we too, as humans, when we go to another place, we should be able to feel and we should be able to respect those spaces in the same way that we can respect the kind of environments that we can access here. It's an amazing experience. Yeah, see, that didn't come to mind right away for me. And I'm really glad you brought that up. And you you did bring up this concept of being stuck on Mars. So (laughs) when you watch a movie like The Martian, are you as a space biologist watching that movie and just going, uh, yes, they got it right? Or are you going, oh, that's just horrible? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, a little bit of both. Um, For me, the most awesome thing about The Martian was the protagonist, the hero was a botanist. I mean, how cool is that? So yeah, I don't care how bad it got. The, when the hero who is saving the day is fearing their botany powers, that was just the best line ever. But the other aspect of that movie was that was, that was true, that was absolutely true is the fact that he had to science the, you know, heck yeah. out of it. And that is what you will have to bring to the table is all the power of science. Some of the things that they did start from the get-go, for instance, the, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is less than one-tenth, one-hundredth of what it is on Earth. And you'd never have winds that high because <laughs> you, just, you just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, But of course, then you wouldn't have the whole movie. One of the things that they got right is that the, the ability to use in-situ resources like the regolith is absolutely thought to be part of, of how we will do this in the future. Again, you're not the whole equivalent system mass things, you're not going to bring dirt from Earth. You're going to have to make it where you find it. And so you're going to need to augment it with some kind of carbon materials. And, uh, and so that was actually, I think, reasonably accurate from at least the philosophical uh, part of that. Would all of his plants died instantly by the, uh, the, the breach in the habitat? Probably not. Um, it, the flash freeze thing, well, you know, that, that's hard to come back from. But we have grown plants in, um, in Martian, regular, or Martian atmospheres for 24 hours. And they hate it. You know, they, they turn on all manner of genes and they get all kind of crumpled up and stuff because the water in their cells is boiling out at room temperature, but they survive. And we have, uh, (laughs) they survive to to go to seed and things. So there are aspects of the Martian that was a little over the top, but nonetheless, it was a a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, do you think that you're ever going to get to go to space and actually do these experiments or grow plants in space? Me, myself, probably not. Probably not. But I really do hope that the work that I've done, the work that we've done, is slayed the foundations for other people to do it and you know look back on the stuff that 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 we did and think wow I'm so glad they did those experiments I don't know that you're out yet I mean Shatner's 90 but he <laughs> but he only went up for like a 30 seconds or something yeah this is true <laughs> yeah but, but you know the time moves pretty quick and you know you you've been on the vomit comet I think you'd be a good astronaut you and Rob both I think it <laughs> 
Plus, then maybe you could get me on the short list. But perfect. If people wanted to learn more about what's happening in your laboratory, where could they look? Well, a very easy place to look is on our laboratory website. And that is if you were just to type into Google UF Space Plants Lab, you will probably come across it. That's great. And then you're also available on Twitter and other places? There's a, a TEDx, UF TEDx talk that you could go into. It's called Humans Are Explorers. Go boldly. And there is also a Science Friday video from uh, NPR that was done a few years ago. And again, if you go to Science Friday and then look for plants in space, you'll be able to find it. Yeah. And just for listeners who are interested in that Twitter URL, the Twitter username is at UF underscore space underscore plants. So at UF space plants with underscores separating the words. So there you go. Well, Dr. Annalisa Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really great to learn about plant biology in these adverse environments. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, we've talked about these things for 20 years. And today you told me more things that I never thought about before. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, Write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcast media. Tell a friend. The ratings continue to go up, which is really great because we're going on 1.7 million downloads and more downloads every week means we're successfully sharing science from what's become an impressive archive. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.